This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Visit Florida, one of the country's great adventure destinations and also the home of four-time wakeboarding world champion, Sean Murray. Hi, my name's Sean Murray, professional wakeboarder living here in Orlando, Florida. Central Florida is like the biggest place for wakeboarding because the nearly year-round riding and all of just the water, there's lakes everywhere here. It's true. Florida may be best known for its incredible beaches, but the state also has more than 30,000 lakes, most of them inside protected natural reserves. Just north of Sean's home in Orlando is the Ocala National Forest, known for its crystal clear freshwater springs. This is also where you can find the world's largest sand pine scrub forest ecosystem. You know, be- before I moved to Florida being a California kid, I always thought that Florida would be just like palm trees and old people driving pink Cadillacs. The first surprise for me was it's mostly pine trees. The Ocala National Forest offers more than 100 miles of dedicated trails for hiking, cycling, and horseback riding. And when you're in the mood for water sports, like Sean usually is, there's canoeing beneath old-growth trees on the legendary Juniper Run, snorkeling in Alexander Springs, and wakeboarding on numerous lakes. Whatever you're doing, you're almost guaranteed spectacular weather. We as Floridians are known as being very picky for like perfect conditions because if it's not really nice out it'll get nice soon you know whether you're like wakeboarding or paddleboarding or whatever it is if you're out on the water you're going to be pretty uh, surprised like the conditions here are generally very good so yeah we're spoiled the fact that there's so much to do outside here all the time with his wife and three daughters is what sean loves most about florida being in the in the air and around nature is it's like super vital to our health, to our mental health, our physical health. And so being able to do that throughout the year, Central Florida, like that's it for me and my family. Learn more about the many kinds of adventures that you can find in the Sunshine State, both on and off the water at visitflorida.com outside. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Podcast. Right about now, my family was supposed to be on spring break. For the last few years, my wife and I have had these grand visions of taking our three young boys somewhere really warm for the vacation, a spot where we can swim and play in the ocean all day long. It's pretty much our favorite thing to do. But then something always gets in the way of the trip, and it doesn't come together. This year, of course, that something is a frightening global pandemic that has us, and millions of other people, staying at home. Which means the closest thing we're getting to a swim these days is a bath. And while I really wish I was on a beach, I feel lucky to at least have a tub. Because submerging yourself in water feels great. It calms me down. It helps me sleep. And I'm not alone in this. Over the course of history, many major figures have sworn by the therapeutic benefits of going under the water. Benjamin Franklin took daily swims in the Thames River when he was living in London. Also, he was a huge skinny dipper. Kind of surprising, right? Euripides, the great poet and playwright of ancient Greece, apparently believed that he was cured of rabies by a near-drowning experience. I learned these facts from Why We Swim, a fascinating new book out this month from journalist Bonnie Tsui. A passionate lifelong swimmer, She wanted to understand why humans feel such a strong pull to the water. 
unlike many other animals, we have to be taught to swim. And for a lot of us, it doesn't come naturally. So why do we do it? When I spoke to Bonnie, her first answer was that we don't have any choice. We swim to survive. And then she started telling me the miraculous story of Goodliger Fedorsen, an Icelandic fisherman known to his friends as Luye, who, in 1984, was forced to complete one of the most grueling swims imaginable, or die trying. It was wintertime, and he was on this fishing vessel off the coast of Iceland. Um, there's this archipelago called the Westman Islands, or Vestmanajar, and this fishing trawler was working the seas. It was nighttime, and it was pretty cold. By pretty cold, she means right around freezing. As the five-man crew worked the sea, their trawling gear snagged on the bottom. They used a winch to try and pull it up, and then the steel winch cable went taut, pulling the boat onto its side. They tried to slacken the winch, but it jammed. This wave came and just knocked the boat over, and everyone went into the ocean. Two of the men drowned almost immediately. Luye and the two others who were still alive climbed on top of their overturned boat, which was sinking fast. They tried to launch the emergency life raft, but they couldn't reach the release mechanism. Usually when something like this happens, um, there's no one left to tell because everyone drowns and everyone freezes to death and the water was 41 degrees. And in 41 degree water, you have 20 minutes maybe, 30 minutes max before you die of hypothermia. There was only one thing for the men to do, swim for shore, which was more than three and a half miles away. So they went for it, calling out to each other as they swam to spur themselves on. Pretty soon, though, Lee realized he was all alone. Exhausted, he talked to seagulls to keep himself awake. One of the things that happens when you get really cold is that you just, you get very fuzzy. None of your extremities are working and, and your brain isn't working and, and just all the blood is rushing to your core to try to keep you warm. He swam backstroke, training his eyes on a lighthouse on the tip of Heme, the island where he'd lived his whole life. After six hours, he reached land, but in the worst possible place, at the base of a cliff. There was no way he could climb up, so he swam back out, and he angled further down the coast. When he finally got out of the water, he was on a field of sharp lava rocks that were covered in snow, and he was barefoot. He yanked off the thin sweater he was wearing over his flannel shirt and tore it so he could wrap pieces around his feet. He's so thirsty, he's exhausted, and so he finds this water trough for watering sheep, and it's frozen solid, so he punches through and he, to get a drink of water, and then he just finds his way into town. This is early morning, and so he knocks on the door of the first house he sees that has lights on, and behind him is this trail of bloody footprints leading up in the snow to this house. When Luye got to the hospital, doctors at first couldn't detect his pulse. But as they continued to examine him, they were shocked to find out that he seemed to be in pretty good shape. He has no signs of hypothermia, and he's only a little bit dehydrated. And it's just sort of like, what? How did this even happen? How, you know, how did he survive? The answer, researchers would later determine, was that he had been gifted with a remarkable biological quirk. Gulliger Fedorsen's body was insulated by more than half an inch of rather solid fat. And that's like two to three times the normal human thickness. And so... He's kind of like a seal. I mean, he's more like a marine mammal than a terrestrial mammal. Or, as many people in Iceland saw it, he was more like a selkie. The mythical creature is found in folktales that can change back and forth 
from human to seal form. And there are all these stories of these you know, selkies, you know, starting human families, and then they'll, like, return to the sea, and they'll take their, like, half-seal babies with them. There's, like, all kinds of stories like that, but they're total fairy tales, you know, and the crazy thing is that he's the real-life selkie. But it was more the magical blubber that kept Luye alive on his swim. The selkie legends of Iceland grew out of a culture that is intimately tied to the sea, and a people that know all too well that being able to swim is a matter of life and death. You know, swimming is just a mandatory part of life. And when I went to visit Heime, that island that he's from in the Westman Islands, there is a history museum and a whole wall is dedicated to documenting drownings at sea. Year after year after year, there are the numbers of people who've drowned. It's a ledger of lives lost. But swimming in Iceland isn't just about survival. It also plays a hugely important social function. Everywhere in Iceland, there are pools. Every town has a pool, and they swim year-round because the pools are, many of the pools are geothermally heated. You'll see kids and babies, and you'll see 89-year-old grandmas and grandpas like going there after work. Someone told me that the pools are our pub. It's just where the community hangs out, and so to be a part of the community, you have to be in the pool and you have to know how to swim. As a young boy, Luye learned to swim in a pool. He and a friend would also swim off of Heme's beaches with no adults in sight. Later, he completed rigorous water safety training in the Maritime Academy. So he was about as well prepared as he could be for his epic. Perhaps even more importantly though, he was Icelandic, a people famous for their grit. In 1973, when a volcanic eruption on Heme threatened the island's harbor, which was critical to the fishing industry, residents actually fought the volcano to a standstill, cooling lava flows with millions of gallons of seawater pumped through pipes. Just over a decade later, when Luye survived an impossible swim, he was held up as the ultimate symbol of a nation's resilience. It was a lot for him to handle. He came here to the U.S. Um, the year of his accident, and he was traveling with friends, and the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson tracked him down. <laughs> they found out where he was and called and said, you know, we want to have you on the show. And he told me this. He said, you know, I turned to my friends and I said, I think it's time to go back to Iceland. <laughs> back home, Leia tolerated the attention and the never-ending requests for interviews and the scientists wanting to study him for a while. And then he didn't. It just starts to wear on you. And he was just like, I want to live my life. And he stopped talking to journalists. He felt that he had done enough and, and just wanted to be left alone. On the first anniversary of Luye's swim, 20 students from Heme's Navigation College gathered at a pool to honor him by swimming the same distance, six kilometers, or 3.7 miles, while fully clothed. This launched an annual tradition, and the event was dubbed the Gullugsund, or Goodlegger's Swim. Over time, people in the community joined in, people who had lost loved ones, and so they would swim for memory and they would swim to honor what Loy was able to do. You know, it became something that was bigger than him and bigger than the lives that were lost. It was just a way to stay connected to their history. When Bonnie traveled to Heme a couple years ago, she met Loye the night before the Goodlegsund. He'd long stopped talking to journalists by then, but Bonnie had sent him a letter anyway, explaining her book, and he'd written back. They became pen pals. 
And when she wrote to tell him she was coming to Iceland to swim in the event, he agreed to meet her. We got into his truck and he's like, we should just go for a drive and talk because, you know, anywhere we go, people will see us or people will be listening. So they toured the island and he told her his story. They even stopped by the lighthouse that had been his beacon as he desperately swam towards Heme all those years ago. At about 6 a.m. the next morning, Bonnie went to the pool to swim the Gulliksund. When she got there, some swimmers were already finishing up, having started at 4.30 in the morning so they could still get to work. Officials were counting laps. More swimmers kept arriving. Towards the end, she started to feel a bit giddy. And then, after an hour and 50 minutes, she was done. And then when I got out, I was sort of lightheaded, um, but I was just, I felt like this euphoria. I just was like, I, I, I swam not just for the feat of doing it, but just like I swam because I wanted to honor him. And then I texted him and I said, I just got out. And he, and the hilarious thing is that he wrote back, good job. And, you know, you, you need to get some rest. And it just was like, it, it just made me laugh so hard that, that he was telling me that I needed to get some rest because it was a long swim. <laughs> The euphoria that Bonnie felt in the pool on Heme wasn't a new or surprising sensation for her. Like a lot of swimmers, she says that many of her experiences in the water have made her feel intensely alive. And this isn't just an aquatic version of runner's high. As a terrestrial species, we're not at home in the water. In fact, when we swim, we're entering an environment where death is suddenly a much more recognizable possibility. That's why the lifeguard is watching. To swim is to constantly be reminded of that boundary line. We're interested and intrigued by it. We want to dance a little closer to that boundary line and see what we find. And I think that's why survival stories, and specifically survival stories about water and being at sea, are so fascinating to us because we want to know what someone reports back from that place. We'll be right back. Earlier, we heard from professional wakeboarder Sean Murray and how Florida's exceptional waterways and weather make it an ideal adventure destination. For Sean, there's no better place to work on your wakeboarding skills, especially if you come to the Orlando Water Sports Complex. It is one of the most well-known wakeboard destinations in the world. Here, Sean offers lessons for everyone from beginners to experts. And while he loves the physical aspects of the sport, he says his favorite part is how it brings people together for a great time. For me, wakeboarding has so many things that it hits, like uh, outside of just the moment when you're out on the water. The social side of wakeboarding and toad water sports in general, you know, water skiing, kneeboarding, tubing, whatever. You get the entire family and friends and age range within a really tight space and everybody's happy to be there. You know, where else can you have it where kids are out with their parents and they're stoked to be there and people are taking turns and they're encouraging each other and learning things and figuring out challenges. It's a really unique environment that if people uh, haven't experienced it, you've got to go get out there because not only will you get hooked once you get up for the first time, but just that environment, it's something that you just can't get elsewhere. Learn more about the many adventures to be had in this one-of-a-kind destination at visitflorida.com slash outside. Swimming may allow us to casually edge closer to our own mortality, but for some people, the only way to really feel that aliveness that comes with being in the water is to dive into the most uncomfortable 
and even frightening of places. Consider the case of Kim Chambers, one of the most accomplished distance swimmers on the planet. Among her achievements is the Ocean Seven, which entails crossing seven open water channels around the world. The list includes the English Channel, the Strait of Gibraltar, and the Molokai Channel in Hawaii. Here's how she explains why she swims in the documentary Kim Swims, which you can watch on Amazon Prime. One thing I always notice is when I'm back on land, all of the signposts to say go left, go right, slow down, is all so controlled and prescribed. When I'm out there in the ocean, it's endless. I am creating my own path. It's this adventure, and it's just a magical, magical space. I'm weightless. Kim's open water marathons are all the more impressive and surprising when you learn that she got into swimming as a way to recover from a horrific accident. Born in New Zealand, she had gone to college in the U.S. and was working in the tech industry in San Francisco when, one morning, she tripped and fell down a staircase while wearing high heels. It was a bad fall, but Kim thought she'd be okay, so she went to work. Then her right leg started swelling like crazy, and she was rushed to the hospital. And she's suffering what's from what's called leg compartment syndrome, which means that the swelling in her leg is basically killing off the nerves and the tissues um, and cutting off circulation. And if you don't get treated for it right away, you will lose that limb. And so she was 30 minutes away from amputation that day. When Kim woke up from surgery, doctors told her they'd saved her leg, but that she might never walk again. This was tough news, for someone who'd been a committed athlete and a serious ballet dancer. She began two years of full-time physical therapy. It helped, but only to a point. She was able to walk with a limp and only with the aid of an orthotic. She didn't feel strong. She didn't feel confident. She didn't feel like herself. She just really felt completely alienated from her body. What changed all that was getting in a pool. She had always remembered that she loved swimming and being in the at the beach with her grandparents in New Zealand and she wanted that kind of freedom. She was a terrible swimmer at first, but it didn't matter. In the water, she could move again. At first, she went to the pool at night so people wouldn't stare at her scars. Soon though, she was comfortable enough to go anytime. And one day, some other swimmers suggested she should take a dip in the frigid San Francisco Bay with the hardy crew of the city's legendary dolphin club. She gave it a go, and it was a revelation. She describes herself as this shivering woman, you know, just like a ghost of herself, but she was so happy. The lack of walls or lane lines, the vastness of the bay, the wildlife, it sparked something in Kim. So she kept going back. And then it just became clear that she, even though she was not the most natural swimmer, she had a lot of power, she had a lot of strength, and she had a lot of spirit that would kind of carry her on. As Kim continued to swim, she noticed that some of the nerves in her injured leg were coming back to life. Bonnie says this isn't a huge surprise. People have long assumed that swimming can alleviate all kinds of problems. In England in the 17 and 1800s, immersion in seawater was believed to be the ultimate tonic for everything from GI distress to fevers to depression. President Franklin Roosevelt, who suffered from polio, had a pool installed in the White House so he could swim multiple times a day for therapy. There's not a lot of science to support the idea that swimming is a cure-all. 
but modern research on arthritic patients has shown that swimming does have a unique ability to increase circulation, stimulate mobility, and reduce pain compared to other activities, and that these benefits endure even when people get out of the water. That was certainly true for Kim. Mentally, too, just being momentarily free of the weight of having to move your body through space. You know, I think that that was incredibly healing for her. Um, and then also to realize that she was really good at it. She was really good at swimming for a long time. Kim's remarkable endurance, combined with many, many hours of training, powered her through the Ocean 7 Challenge. She finished in 2014 with a 21-mile swim across the North Channel between Scotland and Ireland. Afterwards, she had to be hospitalized for toxic shock after suffering countless jellyfish stings. The following year, she jumped into the Pacific Ocean at the Fairlawn Islands, located off the coast of San Francisco and known for an abundant population of great white sharks. She swam 30 miles to the Golden Gate Bridge, making her the first woman to do so. It took her 17 hours, 12 minutes, and 39 seconds. Few of us will ever push ourselves to swim across open water channels, let alone an unheated pool. But almost everyone who's jumped in the water can attest to the fact that it offers special kinds of restorative benefits. The sheer fact of swimming is that you take a big breath and you hold it and then you exhale slowly. And that rhythm is in itself is calming. Bonnie learned to swim at age five because her parents who were big swimmers, didn't want her to drown on the regular trips to the beaches of Long Island, New York. Then she swam competitively, and then, as she got older, swimming became a kind of self-care. When I get in the water, usually I'm just, you know, there's like 80 million things running through my brain, and I feel like a little jittery, but then swimming, after about 10 minutes, it kind of smooths back my feathers. It has carried me through not just my parents' divorce, but I swam up until the day both of my kids were born. Um, I swam through a miscarriage. Bonnie's relationship with swimming helped her understand the most recent turn in Kim Chambers' story. In 2018, Kim woke up one morning and noticed her left foot was numb. Soon, paralysis was spreading through her limbs, and she was once again raced to the emergency room. By the time she got there, she was struggling to breathe. Um, and it turns out that she was diagnosed with Guillain-Barre syndrome. The cause of the condition is unknown, and there's no cure. When Kim left intensive care, she was paralyzed from the waist down and had trouble speaking. Still, many adults do recover from the illness within a year, though there are no guarantees. Kim's path to recovery, of course, has included swimming. Five weeks after going to the hospital, she was back in the cold waters of the bay. It was her 41st birthday, and her friends helped her in her wheelchair to get down to the water and swim for five minutes. And after that, she had to take a three-hour nap. <laughs> so we swim for the euphoric feeling that comes from being out of our element, and we swim to heal. And ironically, we swim to feel grounded. But there's another big reason we swim, which is to be with each other. This is kind of strange when you consider the fact that it's basically impossible to talk to someone while you're swimming. In her book, Bonnie offers a look at a very unexpected swimming club that developed in Baghdad during a volatile period of the Iraq War. 
In 2008, a member of the U.S. Foreign Service named Jay Taylor had taken to swimming in the exquisite open-air pool at a former royal palace of Saddam Hussein that was inside the safety of the Green Zone, which was controlled by international forces. You can imagine that there's like outside chandeliers and fountains, and he would be floating in this beautiful, gorgeous pool and had like diving boards and, you know, he would be staring at the sky and then he would hear this like, paka, 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 paka. And that was the firing practice that the soldiers would be doing. Other members of the international community were using the pool too. And one evening, Jay watched as a man he knew from Madagascar flailed around pitifully in the water. And Jay had grown up swimming and had taught swimming and was a lifeguard and a coach. And he just said, hold up, hold up, hold up. Let me just help you. Pretty quickly, Jay became Coach Jay. And he was teaching a growing squad of swimmers of various abilities from around the world in the middle of a war zone. It was kind of a bizarre situation, to say the least. There would be bombs that would drop every now and again, and there would be sirens, and people would have to sometimes jump out of the pool and into a bunker. It was just a crazy, a totally crazy time. And swimming and giving these lessons was a way that people could kind of preserve normalcy. All kinds of people showed up for lessons and group swims. Officers, soldiers, pilots, diplomats. On land, their interactions would have been based on a rigid hierarchy. But in Coach Jay's pool, they were all on the same level. You know, you couldn't tell who was the commanding officer and who was, you know, the enlisted man is sort of how he put it to me. And that was something that was really special. It's a way of being with each other that is different. It's like you have stripped away a lot of what is your normal armor. Quite literally, you are just in a swimsuit and goggles. Eventually, the green zone moved, and Coach Jay was teaching lessons in a fortified compound. One side of the pool was a big glass wall that people passed by on their way to a cafeteria. Not surprisingly, this led to a surge of new swimmers. More and more and more, like the people would double and then triple. And then by the end of his time in Baghdad, they had like 250 people on their swim roster. I mean, they started calling themselves the Baghdad Swim Team. In the water, there was swimming instruction, fitness drills, and also a kind of twisted game that they called the Guns of Navarone, after the classic Hollywood film. You turn the lights off in the pool, and then everyone would sort of tread water quietly, like up to their eyeballs. And then if people kind of started getting too high in the water or making too much noise, he would peg them with, like, volleyballs. <laughs> and just, this is how they kind of kept sane. You know, it was like the, like the messed up logic of a war zone was just the, these moments where you just had to recognize the absurdity of what was going on. And that was really Right now, few people are lucky enough to be able to swim at all, and almost nobody is playing funny pool games with a big group of friends. But eventually, we're going to dive back in, and it's going to feel amazing. Until then, I'm going to do my best to at least put my head under the water every day. Bonnie Tsui's new book, is why we swim. It's available starting April 14th, but you can pre-order now through her website, bonnietsu.com. That's B-O-N-N-I-E-T-S-U-I.com. The documentary, Kim Swims, is available on Amazon Prime. This episode was produced by me, 
Michael Roberts, with music by Robbie Garber. This episode was brought to you by Visit Florida, one of the country's great adventure destinations. Learn more about the many kinds of adventures that you can find in the Sunshine State, both in the water and off, at visitflorida.com outside. We'll be back next week.